Second Corinthians 5, please. Hebrews 9 also. Hebrews 9 is where we're making some forays on the Wednesday online messages, including this upcoming one. They seem to be a little clumsy forays at first because we go from obscurity to clarity, but we are going fairly deeply into Hebrews 9 and 10 on our Wednesday messages. Father, forgive them is a prayer that's often considered. Those words are often considered as what Jesus uttered to the Father from the cross. But what we rarely consider and remain sort of shrouded in mystery is they know not what they do, for they know not what they do. Now, there's a lot to that. They were doing what they had to do, just as Judas Iscariot did what he had to do, what you have to do, do quickly. They had no idea, and neither do we, none of us ever know the magnitude of an act of evil or of sin. When we sin, and we all sin, none of us knows the magnitude of that act, the evil of that act. And they know not what they do means not only that, not only that they were ignorant of the magnitude of the evil they were doing, but they did not know that their will was being interwoven with God the Father's will at that moment. And what they were intending for evil, God was intending for good. They were actually willing an act by which the world would be reconciled to God. Father, forgive them. They have no idea that what they're doing is leading to the reconciliation of the world. That's how God thinks. That's how Jesus thinks. And so they know not what they do has a lot of different depth of meaning to it. They know not what they do in the depth of evil, but nor do they know that what they're doing will be overruled by divine good. And that's the just and mysterious law of the cross, because God has chosen not to overwhelm the evils of the human race by power, by force, by wrath, but by converting those evils into a supreme good. And that's what he's done through the cross. Men and women who viewed that spectacle saw a crucified criminal, a crucified slave dying the death of a slave, the shameful death of an insurrectionist, beaten more than any other victim of Rome had ever been beaten previous to that crucifixion, nailed mercilessly and cruelly to a tree, the Jews would have seen him as the curse of the law, where cursed, says the scripture, is everyone who hangs on a tree. But little would they know that he was hanging on the tree as everyone, and he was becoming the curse for everyone, that he was becoming sin for everyone, so that everyone would be reconciled to God in Christ. What our eyes should see in retrospect in that crucified Jewish prophet on Skull Hill between two insurrectionists indeed, thieves and murderers, what we should see is God reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God in Christ reconciling the world to himself bringing about a change of situation, a radical alteration, a decisive alteration of the human situation. Joseph hinted at this, a type of Christ, when he said to his brothers, you meant it for evil. He wasn't going to coddle them. Their betrayal of him, 
their attempted murder of him, and the only reason they didn't murder him is because one brother stepped in with a little bit of common sense and a little bit of compassion. What you meant and what you did, you intended for evil, but God intended it for good. Not only for good, but so that many lives would be saved and preserved today. What men intended for evil in the crucifixion of the Son of God, God intended for the salvation not only of many people, but of all people. When they said, let his blood be upon our heads, that was called the blood libel. It's a very controversial verse, and people don't even want to have it in movies. But it was uttered by them, but God didn't honor it as judgment or as wrath, their blood would, his blood would be upon their heads and ours as an outpouring of forgiveness, where we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And so today I deliberately opened in prayer by saying another thing that Jesus said from the cross, which we echo when we say, into your hands, we entrust our spirit, because when he did that, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, from God's side down to man's depths. And the way into the Holy of Holies was finally revealed. The end of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the end of the Levitical priesthood and the service of the priests, who day after day would make offering after offering that could not take away sin. Those sacrifices were over, and the self-sacrifice of the Lamb of God, once and for all and forever, opened the way. So when we present ourselves to God, something happens if we truly entrust our spirits to God. He takes away the curtain in our own heart and mind, the veil in our own heart and mind, which keeps coming over our hearts and keeps coming over our minds and has to be removed every time our hearts turn to Christ. And so I said before, I'll say again, we're not studying Hebrews as an exegesis or a study or an exercise in exposition or a theological exegesis. It is all of that. But it's also God showing us the way into the Holy of Holies and urging us to walk on the highway of the king. It's a blood-paved highway. It goes through the torn curtain that is his flesh, Hebrews 10, 21, 10, 20, and 21, into that holiest of all. When Jesus said, look at my hands and my feet, he was saying, this is the curtain that was torn my flesh. This is the curtain. See the tears? See the tears? This is the curtain that was torn. And my blood is the blood of the new covenant, which shall be for all people, for all people. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his, his life as a ransom for many, that is, for all. So we're engaged in an apocalypse for right now, which is located in 2 Corinthians five fourteen to 21, a very treasured passage of scripture. We're in part eight now of that apocalypse. It will hang together perhaps as a 10-part series or maybe even more a 10-part series within a series. And it's an apocalypse for right now. It's really a series of sermons on this crucial, crucial section. And the reason I chose it is because it can be splendidly and elegantly interwoven with our Hebrews text. Paul, the apostle, who calls himself a preacher or a herald and an apostle and a teacher, blends splendidly with this pastor and this teacher who wrote or who preached this homily called Hebrews. And I think as we go on more and more into Hebrews, we'll see the 
wisdom of God directing us to interweave this passage. The second reason I chose this is because this passage, perhaps like none other in the scripture, highlights the radical alteration of the universal human situation that occurred in the crucified Christ, in the buried Christ, in the resurrected Christ, and is ever advertised now at the right hand of the Father in the exalted Christ, the enthroned Christ, where a coronation happened that causes all other coronations, including the one that happened in England pretty recently, to pale in comparison, the King of Kings. I was greatly encouraged in watching increments of that particular coronation yesterday with Pam as we watched some of it that an amazing amount of attention was paid to the King of Kings, that the coronation of King Charles III was an entire, the entire thing was directed toward Jesus Christ, which kind of was mind-boggling, especially in today's day and age. And that billions saw that is a testimony to God's kindness and grace. We'll begin with, I guess if this was a meal, this would be course one, it's not, but a refreshed, expanded translation. That means that it's the same passage, but I've refreshed it with some commentary and expanded it as to give the sense, which is what I'm commanded to do and everyone who teaches the word is commanded to do in Nehemiah 8.8. 8. So 2 Corinthians 5.14, please carefully consider these words and I'll tell you what my bracketed commentary is. For the love of Christ controls us. That means grips, arrests, and holds us. Having judged this, since one died in inclusive representation of all, then all died. That's the radical alteration of the universal human situation. No human being alive will ever be justified in God's sight. Romans 3.20, quoting Psalm 143.2. No human being, no flesh, no human living will ever be justified. All died. No living will be justified. All died when the one died. And when the one died, he was justified. So all died who could never be, while alive, justified by God. And in God's eyes, all died in the one who died and was justified. Think about these things. The love of Christ controls us is sineko in the Greek. It means it's grips, it, grips us, it grips us, arrests us, and holds us, impels us, and moves us. All those things. Having judged this, krino, sineko, the grip of the love of Christ on us, is linked and you can't break the link with Crino, the judgment we came to. That when one died for all, all died. The love of Christ does not control us until we make that judgment. And we have made that judgment, Paul says. If we're going to be the apostle at Atlat, if we're going to be the shameless ambassadors, the embassy of Christ in this world today, we're going to have to have made this judgment that there has been a radical alteration of the human situation in Christ. There is none that does righteous. There's not one that's ever done good. So the one man, Jesus Christ, performed the one righteous act that those who could never do good could be justified. The fact that God used evil to fulfill his good intention does not mean that we should go out and do evil so that good may come. No, because now we know the good. We know to do the good. We know what is the good. It's every action motivated by the love of Christ. But I digress. 
The love of Christ controls us, having judged this, since one died, not, there's no if to this, since one died, in inclusive representation of all, then all died. There's the first exclamation point. That's the radical alteration of the universal human situation. All died right then. And he died, verse 15, in inclusive representation of all, so that those who live, that means those who live having died with him, those who live after having died with him, our life is now an afterlife already. When we die and go to heaven, as people like to put it, really when we die and go home to be with the Lord, which is much more than going to heaven. When we die, we people call that our afterlife, but really that's our after-afterlife. He died in inclusive representation of all so that those who live, having died with him, would no longer live themselves. That's a translation I want you to see because it's not in most tr English translations. They would no longer live themselves. I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, that they would no longer live themselves. But he who died in representation of them and was raised would live in them, and they, please note this refreshed and expanded translation, they, that's we, not of ourselves, by ourselves, in ourselves, to ourselves, for ourselves, but of him, by him, in him, to him, for him, who died in representation of us. Let me read that again. It's a refreshed and expanded translation. It's true to the Greek text. And he died in inclusive representation of all so that those who live after having died with him would no longer live themselves. But he who died in representation of them and was raised would live in them and they not of themselves, by themselves, in themselves, to themselves, for themselves, but of him by him, in him, to him, for him, who died in representation of them and was resurrected. Verse 16, so from now on, we know no one by any natural means of perception. That means we know no person after some superficial characteristic, our first impression of them our ongoing impression of them, comparing them with ourselves, measuring them by themselves or by others. No, from now on, that's a pretty radical change. We know no one by any natural means of perception. Even if once we regarded Christ by mere natural means of perception, even if once we just saw him as Paul did, as a crucified insurrectionist, as one justly punished, as a criminal nailed to a tree, cursed. Even if once we knew him that way. We don't know him that way anymore. Well, how do you know him now, Paul? I know him as the one in whom God reconciled the world to himself. That's a change. That's a change of heart and a change of mind that is appropriate to the radical change of situation. So from now on, we know no one by any natural means of perception or by any superficial characteristic. Superficial characteristics include ethnicity, race, skin color, skin tone, accent, language, looks, fashion, class, dress, Even if we regarded Christ by natural means of perception, we no longer perceive him that way. Now we perceive and know him as the one, that's my comment, as the one 
God-man, in whom God reconciled the world to himself. Consequently, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, and here's my comment, because it's true to the text, and everyone is. If all died, and then were still with him when he lived, then all are in him. So if any man, if any person, if anyone is in Christ, then everyone is, because Christ died for all, and all died in him. It's not like we just stayed there dead in him. We, we stayed in him when he rose from the dead. So we're still in him. Who is? The world. Everyone is in him, whether they know it or not. That's the whole point. We who know it go to the world to let them know it. We acknowledge that change. We align to it, and then we attest to it as ambassadors, as apostolate. Consequently, if anyone is in Christ, then everyone is because Christ died for all and all died in him. He or she is part of the new creation. And that is just as Jesus Christ is the beginning of the creation of God in Revelation 3.14. The old things have passed away. Look. That means look by faith, by your new means of perception. All things have become new. That's the second declaration, the radical alteration of the universal situation. All things have become new. Now everything, verse 18, now everything is, and he's continually speaking here as a subject who perceives. Everything is, and I add this in comment, now everything is perceived and known to be, that is by us now, from God. Now everything is perceived and known to be from God. Who reconciled us, and Paul means by that the world, to himself through Christ. Everything is from God who reconciled the world to himself through Christ. What's that? The third declaration of the radical alteration of the universal human situation. The universal situation per se, not just human. And gave us, now Paul's getting a little bit localized and personal, gave us, that is those of us who have, been made, who have made this judgment that one died for all and therefore all died. Those of us that have made this judgment come to this conclusion, that is. He gave us, those who are now controlled by the love of Christ, he's talking about now, those who perceive the situation of all people to have permanently changed, those of us who know this, have recognized this, and have judged this, he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are ministers of a new covenant. We have a ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Why am I laughing? It's not because it's funny. It's because I'm... It, it's makes me joyful. I have joy here. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the radical alteration of the universal human situation. That has taken place. The next time you view the most obnoxious person you've ever seen in your life, which may be your neighbor or co-worker, look at them and say, they were reconciled in Christ by God to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, the radical alteration of the universal situation for the fourth time in this passage. See why I chose it? Not imputing to them their transgressions. You might. God doesn't. And has placed in us the message. That's the word. Log on. The announcement is better even than that announcement or message, placed in us the message of the reconciliation. Consequently, we are ambassadors. It might even be better to say an apostolate. 
an embassy of apostles, an embassy of envoys, unashamed envoys, in behalf of Christ. Oh, you're an embassy planted in our world? Yes. Well, who do you represent? Do you represent Britain? Do you represent Scotland? Do you represent the Sudan? Do you represent Rhodesia? Do you represent Afghanistan? No, we represent the kingdom of God. We represent Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. God making his appeal through us. Is God in us willing and doing of his own good pleasure? Is God in us willing and doing not just his pleasure, but to the pleasure, meaning our pleasure and his? Is God in us willing and doing? Yes. Then God is in us making an appeal through us. God is in us willing to make this appeal, making this appeal because God in us willing is the God who wills all people to be saved. It doesn't mean he wants it. It doesn't mean he wishes it. It means he willed it. And he gives us the privilege to testify to the world of this universal radical change of the human situation. Consequently, we're ambassadors in behalf of Christ. God making his appeal through us. As we say, we say, as God says in us, is the point here. We urge you, in behalf of Christ, receive and acknowledge your reconciliation with God. Or as Bart put it, and we should all use this analogy, I think, open the letter you got. We all got one from God. Open it. It says, dear human being whom I love, you've been reconciled to me in Christ by me. Believe it. Love God. We urge you in behalf of Christ, receive and acknowledge your reconciliation with God. For in representation of us, the one who knew no sin, the one who knew all sinned, the one who knew no sin, was made sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Now, because I don't want everything to be perfectly clear yet, I, I want to throw a little ringer into this mix just before we go on. Something theological to think about. I'm going to say two verses Two parts of two verses, and then leave it to you to think about it. One, be attentive, Israel. Yahweh, our God. Yahweh is one. The Hebrew says, Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu. Adonai. Why Adonai? Because they don't want to say Yahweh. <laughs> so I say Yahweh. Hope God forgives me. Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, or Yahweh, Eloheinu. Adonai, Yahweh, Echad. God is one. Now consider this. That's the gist of that verse. Listen, Israel, God is one. How about this now? One died for all. God is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, one died for all. Think about this. Meditate on our mediator. I'll leave it with you there. So here it is. Maybe this is the third course, if, if I were to call it a meal. I'm not this time. That could get old fast. But the radical alteration of the human situation times four. Let's review. The radical alteration of the universal human situation brought about by God in the crucified and risen Christ is stated at least four times in this passage, an apocalypse for right now. One, since one died in inclusive representation of all, then all died. Two, the old things have passed away. Look and see by faith, all things have become new. Third, 
Now everything is perceived and known to be from God who reconciled us, the world, to himself through Christ. And most emphatically, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, seven things about the time in between. There are two radical alterations. One is the radical alteration of the universal human and, in fact, the universal per se situation happened in Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. There is yet something we hope for and expect with absolute, unqualified, confident expectation, and that is the radical alteration of the universal condition, its liberation from slavery to corruption, and the universal salvation of every human being, the dead and the living, in 2 Timothy 4.1, the experience of that resurrection salvation. And so as we've repeatedly averred, and if I introduce a new word, I'll say what it means, aver, A-V-E-R, means to assert dogmatically to say with certainty. So as we have repeatedly averred, we now live in the time between this radical universal human alteration and the hoped for, that means confidently expected, radical universal human and creational situation that is to come about when Christ appears a second time with salvation for the entire waiting and groaning creation. For according to our interweaving of 2 Corinthians with Hebrews 9, if you want to, we'll take the time to look at it briefly, Hebrews 9, 28. Let's consider this just for a moment because this is where the interweaving happens. The needle goes into the fabric of Hebrews, comes back into the fabric of 2 Corinthians. The real power in these last days, the real power of the word doesn't come just from the exposition of a passage, but from the interweaving of a passage with other passages. It's the correlation and the explosion of the correlation that presents the power to a world that's disturbed but reconciled to God and needs to know it. We're living in the escalation of the angelic warfare that's occurring in the atmosphere around us as Daniel 10 presents it. We are living in an escalation of spiritual warfare right now. It's hitting a peak. People are choosing sides. And churches are choosing sides. Look at 2 Corinthians. Let's interweave this with Hebrews 9, rather, 28. The Messiah. That's Christ, the Savior of the world. When Messiah is spoken, the word Messiah means the Messiah of Israel, the promised deliverer of Israel, but it also means the Savior of the world. John 4.42. Never forget that. The Messiah, that's Christ, also known as the Savior of the world, having been once and for all, that's ho Christos hapax, the Christ once and for all. Hapax, a key word. The Messiah, having been once and for all offered to bear the sins of many. And we know that many means all. I don't have to go into that again, although I probably will down the road will appear a second time, as the great archpriest did in the Old Testament. He will appear a second time. He appears once, then he goes in. He appears a second time to show that what he did when he went in is successful, was successful for all of Israel, or in our case, all the world. The Messiah offered, having been once and for all offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, Without sin, that means this time not having to deal with sin, this time not having to become sin, this time to those awaiting for him. You say, see, there it is, the condition, we have to be waiting for him. Okay, all right, he's bringing for the purpose of salvation. I put universal salvation there because that's exactly what it means. So let me read the verse again. The Messiah, having been once and for all offered to bear the sins of many, that's all, will appear a second time without sin for the purpose of salvation. He became sin for all. He brings salvation to all. You say, for those who wait for him. So there it is, a condition. He's only going to bring salvation to those who wait for him. Okay, all right. Did you know that the cow you saw in the field this morning is waiting for him? Well, 
The cow can't know he's waiting. Exactly. Did you know that the trees that you saw budding in the spring are waiting for him? Well, they can't wait for him, but they, yes, they are waiting. According to Paul, it says all creation is groaning in anticipation, waiting for him to liberate them from their slavery to corruption. Do they know they're waiting? No, but they're waiting. The dead are waiting. The, those who don't know anything about this message are waiting. They're, you say, they're not waiting for the Lord Jesus to come. No, but they're waiting for some kind of deliverance. They're waiting for something better. They wish for something better. They want something better. They, if the, all they see is this world, they want to end their lives oftentimes. Because they're really, is that all there is? Wow, I won American Idol, and now is that all there is? Wow, I'm a billionaire. Wow, is that all there is? Wow, I've got not only a house, I own a whole compound. The whole family can come in and live for free. Uh, is that all there is? Is that all? No, then there's something in you waiting. You don't know it. You don't say, I'm waiting for the appearance of the great archpriest. You're not going to come up to a guy tomorrow and just come out of a newspaper store, and maybe he didn't buy a newspaper. Maybe he bought a naughty magazine. And you would, you're going to say to him, what are you waiting for? Well, I'm waiting for the Lord to come and bring salvation. No, he's not. He's not going to say that. He's going to put his cigarette out on your shoe and say, get out of my way. Now, those that are waiting for him means the whole universe and all of humanity is waiting for him, and he's bringing for salvation to all who are waiting for him, and that's all. That's everybody. So we find ourselves in the time between these two radical, eschatological, decisive, universal, permanent, divinely created alterations. The more I think of these alterations, the more I have to add adjectives to them. We find ourselves in the time in between these two radical, eschatological, decisive, universal, permanent, divinely created alterations. We're in between those two things. Oh, how I wish I was past the change of condition and could look back on the universal change of condition. Oh, how I long to be looking back at the change of condition and say, oh, man, I'm sure glad that happened. It hasn't happened yet. It will happen, and I have confidence that it will. So do you, I'm sure. So we live in the time between these two radical eschatological alterations. Now you say, but you've repeated this over and over again. Uh, you know what? If I didn't, and I asked you five years from now, remember what we taught on the radical alteration of the human situation. Tell me what it's all about. You'd say, oh, I forgot. That's why I repeat. And Paul said... For me, repeating isn't bothersome. It doesn't bother me to repeat, he said. And for you, it's your stability. Your stability of your soul, the stability of your confidence rests on a preacher repeating, repeating, repeating. So I'm repeating this. To repeat this is not bothersome to me. And for all of us, repetition is for our spiritual stability. Philippians 3.1, Hebrews 6.20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul because somebody keeps repeating it. For the love of Christ control. Here's the seven things that we do in between or that are done to us in between these two alterations. It's all in this passage too. One, the love of Christ controls us. Two, we no longer live ourselves. But he who died, you'd, you'd realize what would happen if psychiatrists said this to people. People pour out their hearts to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrists say to them, your whole problem is you're living yourself. That's your whole problem. You're living yourself. Do you know that Christ died, and when he died, you died with him, and now you don't live yourself, but Christ lives in you. Now, that's not going to change them instantly because, A, they won't believe it at first. But that's the transformative word. We no longer live ourselves, but he who died in representation of us and was raised lives in us and not we ourselves. We don't live by ourselves, in ourselves, curvaturae in ad se, the Latin phrase, curved into ourselves with self-absorption. To ourselves, 
with a view to ourselves, for ourselves. Live for yourself for a couple days and see where that gets you. Live, we don't live for ourselves, but of him, by him, in him, to him, for him. That little preposition, live for him, isn't just live for him. It means a lot of other things. You know that little preposition, n, for example, that not used here, but n, e-n, is called by Daniel Wallace, and I remember this because I read it more than once. Daniel B. Wallace, in his grammar book, he said N, E-N, is the workhorse of the prepositions of the Greek New Testament. It has 36 meanings. So I'm just giving you a few of these meanings. When Paul says we don't live ourselves, but we live by him, in him, to him, for him, with a view to him. That's why it says looking unto Jesus, out and away from yourselves, out and away from everybody else, out and away from what everybody else is saying about you, good or bad. And look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him, or better, that instead of the joy that was in front of him, he endured the cross thinking very little of the shame, and he's now set down at the right hand of the Father, you see. We live to him, with a view to him, for him who died in representation of us and was resurrected. Third, another thing we do or is done to us in the time in between. From now on, we, throughout this time in between, throughout our lives in this present evil age, know no one by natural means of perception after any superficial characteristic. Our unhappiness is often linked to how we judge people because if we judge, we shall be judged with the same measure that we judge others. We judge others negatively, we view them superficially, we judge them negatively, and we wonder why we're unhappy in life because the judgment's coming back on us. If you think of everyone as reconciled to God in Christ, it's amazing what comes back at you. Joy, peace, lots of other wonderful things. Well, you know, I get a lot of satisfaction out of maligning the president and the vice president. Really, do you? Are you happy because of that? Or do you pray for those in authority like the Bible says? Like the Bible says. So... Third, from now on in this time in between, we know no one by any... How can we? How can I know someone by some other means than that they are reconciled to God by God in Christ? How can I know someone outside of that now if I believe that? I can't. I thank God he lets me get mad for a little while at some people. Swear at them, then rebound. (laughs) I'm only kidding. Not really. But even if we were, if we once regarded Christ by mere natural means of perception, how do you know Jesus? I saw him in a movie. I saw a movie about him. Well, so you know him after a natural means of perception then, by a dramatic means of perception then. That's pretty good. Uh, do you, did you see him crucified at the end? Did you cry? When he raised, I remember when I was 12, I saw Jeffrey Hunter as Jesus in King of Kings, and he appeared in the resurrection. And my mom was having a meal for all our family, and my grandmother and grandfather. And she said, Rick, come on in. I just watched the resurrection. Tears were flowing out of me like a river when I saw Jesus appear resurrected. And I I said, I'll be in in a minute. (laughs) You know, I had to compose myself because I didn't want to go out and say to my grandfather, well, I just watched a movie. It was profound, but I didn't yet know that God was in Christ in that crucified Christ, reconciling the world to himself. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about him. Now I do. So you see the whole, it's a change of perception. It's a change of valuation. It's a change of imagination. It's a change of everything, inside as well as out. Now we perceive him. And know him as the one God-man in whom God reconciled the world to himself. Fourth thing 
in the time in between. Now we perceive everything to be from God. Even that which is, listen carefully to this, even that which is done by humans and the evil one actuating those humans who intends it for evil. We see everything is from God, even those things that, as the parable says, an evil one has done this. Who put seed, who put the seed of this terrible, inedible wheat in with the good wheat? Jesus said, an enemy has done this. Let them grow up together. So we perceive everything to be from God, even that which is done by humans under the evil one and intended for evil. We see that it's intended for the good by God, the God of love and peace, the God of omnipotent grace and everlasting mercy, the God who shows mercy to all, God who reconciled the world to himself in Christ while the world was still his enemy, Romans 5.10. God who turns a curse into a blessing, Deuteronomy 23.6. God who converts the evils of the human race into a supreme good by the just and mysterious law of the cross. God who said a final no to sin and death and Hades and a decisive yes to his good his very good creation, whose yes and whose amen is Jesus Christ, the emphatic yes and amen to all the promises of God. What did God do? Well, so these people won't think they're saved by faith. I'm going to conclude them all as in unbelief and disobedience so that I can have mercy on them all. I'll make their salvation of mercy by my faithfulness. Fifth, God gave us, those of us who have made this judgment, God gave us, Paul says, those of us who have made this judgment, who are now controlled by the love of Christ and who perceive the situation of all people to have permanently changed. He gave it to us. People who don't, aren't controlled by the love of Christ shouldn't preach the gospel. They aren't the apostolate. They're sanctimonious. They're not sanctified. They don't have the right to preach the gospel because those who don't aren't motivated by the love of Christ, who don't know that God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ, that Christ became sin, that the world would be made the righteousness of God in him, because they haven't made that judgment, and they go out and say they're evangelists. What are they teaching? Something that scatters people away instead of draws them to Christ, and that's why people are fleeing the churches. On top of that, we have this elite priesthood who, under the monstrous presumption that they have the ecclesiological ecclesiastical authority to forgive sins or withhold sins. People are fleeing from that. They should. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has placed in us the word of the reconciliation. That's sixth. Seventh, consequently, we are ambassadors, an apostolate. In behalf of Christ, God making his appeal through us, as we say, in essence, we urge you on behalf of Christ, receive and acknowledge by faith your reconciliation with God. For in representation of us, the one who knew no sin was made sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. May the Lord, the spirit, make these things clear. So here's a practical application. Three A's, acknowledge, align, and attest. To be reconciled to God in Christ is to acknowledge and align ourselves to the radical alteration of the human situation that has been brought about by God in Christ. Well, what's that mean? It is to acknowledge and align ourselves to the fact that we died. We died. Paul said it pretty bluntly in Colossians 3 3 you died. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Because you not only died, but you continue to live when he was raised from the dead. So your life is hid with Christ in God. In fact, Christ is your life. And when he appears, you'll appear with him in glory. 3, 4. So to, it is to acknowledge that our old man was crucified with Christ. Remember in Josie Wales, as you all must have seen Josie Wales, or you're probably not saved. When... Josie met with ten bears, and they cut each other's hand, and they did the blood thing, the handshake. And 
Ten Bears said to Josie Wales, it shall be life. And what did Josie Wales say? I reckon so. So God says to us, by the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been reconciled to me. You've been crucified with Christ. And you say what? I reckon so. I reckon. Paul said it. If you read the King James Version, which you must, or else you're probably not saved, it says, reckon yourselves to be crucified. The old man to be crucified with Christ. Reckon on it. Account it to be so. Because it is. Don't account it to be so as if it's so when it really isn't. That's not what he's saying. Account it to be so because it is. Reckon your old man to be crucified with Christ because he was. You died. So when I say acknowledge this reality, I mean what Paul meant in Romans 6. It's to acknowledge that our old man was crucified with Christ, to reckon it so. It's to hear your old self was crucified with Christ from the Spirit and to reply, I reckon so. It's to acknowledge and align ourselves to the fact and the reality that our life is hid with Christ in God in Colossians 3. 3. It is to acknowledge and align ourselves to the fact and the reality that now we live to God in Christ because when the one who died and was justified, because the one who died was justified in his death in Romans 6, 7, when he died, we died and were justified with the justification of life in Romans 5.18. It doesn't just say he justified all. It says he gave justification and life to all. All shall be made alive in Christ, Romans 5.18 in connection with 5, 1 Corinthians 15.22. So remember this. Jesus is the one, capital O-N-E, who died. He died for all to live again as justified, and all died and live again justified. For since we all died with him, we will all live with him, Second Timothy 2.11. If we died with him, and we did, it's a since we died with him and we did, we will also live with him. So if he died and when he died for all, all died, then all who died will live. That means in him. That's eternal life. And not only now, but into and throughout the coming ages and future world. If we deny him. What about that? If we deny him. You know what that means? If we deny this reality. If we deny the reality that we died with him, Jesus will deny us the right to deny that reality. That's what that means. He's reality. If we deny him, 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. If we deny him, we deny this reality. But if we deny him, he denies us our denial. You don't have the right to deny the radical alteration of the human situation. You don't have the right to. You can do it, but it won't stand. I deny you that right. For Jesus Christ does not let our denial stand as reality because it's not reality. If we remain faithless, even throughout our mortal lives, and many people do, they die swearing at God. They live their whole lives in unfaithfulness. Guess what happens to them? God remains faithful to the unchangeable change and alteration of their situation in Christ. He who promised is faithful, Hebrews 10.23. He can't deny the reality that is himself, that is his very existence, that is our peace for us, that is his reconciliation of us, that is his show of mercy to all whom he imprisoned in unbelief in order to show us all his saving mercy. Let's give everyone in the human race the chance to prove that they don't believe. Okay, they're all in one category now. So let's save them by mercy. That's Romans 11.30 to 32 if you don't believe it. And 2 Corinthians 5.18 to 20 makes clear that we are not only to acknowledge and align ourselves, and this is where, we're, where this thing heads. We're not only to acknowledge and align ourselves to this radical alteration of the human situation, but we are to attest to it. With the danger of being called crazy as 2 Corinthians 5.13 says. We attest to it. You've been reconciled to God in Christ. You're crazy. Maybe. From your perception. 
So again, we acknowledge and align ourselves to the radical alteration of the universal human situation in the crucified and resurrected Christ, but we also attest to it as an apostolate of Christ and an embassy of ambassadors of Christ, now is what I call the apostolate atlaw. May the Lord the Spirit make these things clear. So in closing, we see an agreement here between Paul and the preacher who preached Hebrews. Paul and the preacher who preached Hebrews. What Paul reveals by the use of plain speaking to a Greco-Roman audience to be God's universally reconciling act in Christ, the author of Hebrews reveals by the use of cultic language. Now, when I say cultic, I don't mean cult, like Jim Jones. I mean cultic in the sense of priestly sacrifices. Cultic is a word in the dictionary. You can look it up in the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition. It simply means the formal means of expressing religious reverence, ceremony, and ritual. In other words, the writer to Hebrews couches the, the crucifixion of Christ, the reconciliation of the human race to God in Christ in cultic terms, that is, in terms of priestly sacrifices and the Old Testament Levitical rituals, and he couches it in the, the sphere of sacrifice. And so that's, he does the same thing Paul does, only he does it to a more Jewish audience or a Hellenistic Jewish audience and couches it in cultic language. Look it up so that you don't get mixed up between cultic and cult. So, and I already know what people think of me, so sometimes I will say, I want to introduce myself to people. They'll say, are you a pastor? I heard you're a pastor. I'll say, no, I'm a cult leader. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rick, your neighbor. I, I'm a cult leader. <laughs> so, oh, we heard that about you. Don't you think that's bad to be? No, I love it. I'm a cult. I, I love to be a cult leader. You ought to meet my cult. Come and meet the cult. No, don't, because that means I'm inviting you to church, and I never do that. So in closing, help me, Father, Paul the herald and teacher and apostle, he called himself that, and the preacher who preached Hebrews are announcing the same universally saving, significant Jesus Christ. They are both knowing and communicating nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified and his radical, universal, permanent, salvific effect and impact to the infinite good of all. All of his good creation, which is also a thundering no to all that is not of his creation. He saves all that is of his creation and he calls it good. But what's not of his creation is death and sin. And Hades, so they don't make the cut. You see, he says no. Sin and death and Hades, though poetically personified in Scripture as persons, are finally and forever denied existence in the new creation, which is everyone and everything in the heavens and on earth in Christ. What's the new creation? Everything in Christ, everybody in Christ. May the Lord the Spirit make all these things clear so that we may see Jesus more clearly and be continually changed into his image from one increment of glory to the next, even now, even in this present evil age, which will be over once and for all and will yield to future world, where already all the angels of God worship Jesus, the Lamb of God, and you may not be with your loved ones who are there, but your loved ones are with you because they are present to your future. All the angels worship him there, the Lamb of God, the great shepherd. He's the lamb and the shepherd. He's the Lord and the servant slave. He's the judge and the judged. He's the priest and the once and for all, all saving sacrifice. Let's pray and Vicki will lead us in our song that we began or that we sang earlier and we'll close. Our Father, keep us and our children and our children's children from the strategies of the evil one. Grant us grace to flee from idolatry. 
Make us complete as those who worship you in spirit and in truth, who serve with a conscience purified from the evil of guilt, with hearts gripped and held by the love of Christ, with eyes enlightened to see Jesus, to know Christ as he in whom you reconcile the world to yourself, and in knowing him and seeing him, Father, to know and to see you, God the judge of all, whose judgment is justification to all of your creation, and whose judgment is the annihilation of all that is not your good creation. Turn us, Father, when we need to be turned to you, and we will be turned. Help us to see all things clearly, especially all people as reconciled to you in your Son. Turn the ends of the earth to you, and they will be saved in the only name by which everyone is saved, the name Jesus. Jesus.